Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. I love that story of Saul, of Paul's conversion. It starts this way, meanwhile, while Saul was still breathing out murderous threats, you know, it doesn't get much better than a beginning of a story than that, right? Still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Then in the midst of that, he goes to the high priest in Jerusalem to get letters so that he can go all the way up 100, nearly 140 miles by foot, long week's journey all the way up northeast to Damascus to find more Christians there, more people that believe that Jesus is the Messiah, died and risen for them, so that he can take them prisoners back to Jerusalem. That's a lot of work for him to do that. And by the way, Paul, Saul, uh, that's just his Hebrew name or his Greek name. So if your name's John in Italian, Italian you might go by Giovanni, or in German, Johann, same thing. So Saul, Paul, Paul thought he was serving God by killing the followers of Jesus. So if you turn a few pages back in the book of Acts, you'll find uh, just before Stephen was the first person, first martyr known to the church, first person killed for believing in Jesus. And there's Paul standing over that approving of it. But then it says, the story goes on, it gets better. As he neared the city of Damascus, so a week long of, of hate in his heart and mind, nothing but what can I do, find these people and root them out. And by the way, when he persecutes those in Jerusalem, like Stephen, many Christians flee and flee to places like Damascus, has the reverse effect. You've kicked people out of one city, you've actually spread the gospel to all the other places they have gone. So he nears the city of Damascus and and suddenly it says, "A, a light from heaven flashed around him and Paul fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you? And the voice says, I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. The risen Jesus appears to Saul on the road, about to go into the city after a week's long journey. And he says, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you will do. And it says the travelers around, Paul stood there, they were speechless, they could hear the sound but couldn't see anyone. And then he got up from the ground and he opened his eyes but he was blind, he couldn't see. And so then they lead Paul by the hand into Damascus and for three days he was blind. And then it goes on, it says there was was in Damascus this disciple named Ananias and the Lord then calls out to him and says, Ananias, listen. He says, yes, yes, Lord. He says, go to the house of Judas, not the disciple, common name, other one, on Straight Street and Main Street and ask for a man. There's just this guy you probably don't know about. His name's Saul from Tarsus. Just go find him. He's praying. And it says, in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And then Ananias says, God, I'm not fooled. I know who this Paul guy is. I've heard the reports. And all that he's done, I, are, are you sure about this? I, I really don't, not sure I want to go. So Ananias has gutsy faith because if he's wrong, he's probably dead. Or he's the first to get arrested and dragged back to Jerusalem. And so Ananias is probably thinking, oh, Paul, really? God, are you sure? I, I, I trust you, God, but I, I'm still not sure about this. But the Lord then said to Ananias, no, no, go, this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
And then Ananias says, okay, all right, I'm not sure, but I'll go. So Ananias goes to the house, finds Paul, places his hands on him, and says, Brother Paul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he lays his hands on him and prays for him, and then God heals Paul. It says something like scales fell from his eyes, and he could see, and then right away he gets up and gets baptized. Because that's what you do when you believe in Jesus. He gets baptized. And then he eats and regains his strength. And then Saul, it says, spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And here's where it gets really good. Verse 20, if you're following along. At once, Paul goes to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and said, Wait, isn't this the guy who, was, who raised havoc in Jerusalem? And hasn't he come here to do the same thing? Uh, yet, it says, Paul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jewish people living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. You don't have to look very far in the Bible to find God's sense of humor. You see, Paul sets out to go on this near 140-mile journey by foot to Damascus, and Paul gets to Damascus, but the very reason he's gone has completely changed. Paul leaves with hate in his heart for a week of walking, planning to persecute the Christians. And by the time he actually gets there, he's preaching about Jesus, trying to convince everybody else that Jesus is their risen Messiah and Savior. So God says, you want to go to Damascus, Paul? Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name, Paul, of all people. Paul's the last person of all people you'd think to believe in Jesus. He wants to get rid of the believers, and by the time he gets to the city, he's joined them. The gospel is simply that good. It is. The gospel can melt the hardest heart, whether it takes a moment in Paul's case, or maybe decades for some of you. God's grace is that deep. And God's forgiveness is that big. God's heart is that loving. God wants people like Paul in his family. God wants people like Paul to serve him. God's heart beats for people like Paul. God seeks them out. God loves them. God forgives them. God changes them. And then God commissions them. And it's often the most unlikely Christians that end up being the most convincing ones. And many writers have said that in that day, Paul's testimony alone was probably enough to make some people there believe in Jesus on the spot. Often the most unlikely Christians are the most convincing ones. I want you to meet Hisham Shahab. Hisham grew up in Beirut, Lebanon, in a world of bitter animosity between Muslims and Christians. And he experienced that personally at the age seven when he was physically attacked. Hisham was from a very prominent Muslim family and a direct descendant of Muhammad. By the age 13, though, he was recruited by the Muslim Brotherhood and then later fought in the 70s against Christian militias in the war in Lebanon. Well, as a young adult in university studies, tragically, his brother and best friend was killed by a Christian militia. And Hisham's response was to study by day, but then by night he wanted to seek revenge and kill the Christians, especially the ones that killed his brother. 
But however, he began reading about Jesus in a university course that he was taking. And he realized that the Jesus he met in the Bible was not like the people that bore the name Christian around him. And he heard the words, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he said those words of Jesus stunned him and yet drew him towards Jesus. And the more he read the Bible, he said the more he felt peace and forgiveness instead of hatred and revenge, and he believed in Jesus. Well, if you fast forward Hisham's life many, many years, he's been on the front lines of reconciliation efforts between Muslims and Christians and caring for refugees and, and immigrants new to America. He lives in the Chicago area now. Not only that, Hisham is now a Lutheran pastor and pastors an Arabic-speaking Lutheran church in Chicago, where he has baptized dozens of former Muslims from the Middle East who now know Jesus as their Savior. You see, it's often the most unlikely Christians that become the most convincing ones. It's because the gospel is that good, and the gospel is for you too. Even if, probably not, but even if your past includes murdering Christians, that's not beyond God's forgiveness. Jesus bled and died saying, Father, forgive my enemies. God's grace is yours because Jesus died and rose for you. And there's nothing that you have done that is not already forgiven by Jesus and buried at the cross. There is no sin in your life that God has not already dealt with. So no matter who you are and what you've done, God wants your heart. God wants your life and God has plans for you. Plans to use you because he wants you to show others what Jesus is like. How often have you said or how often have I said, oh God, God can't use me. Maybe you say, well, I've, I've done some bad things. God can't use me. Or that, that's not my gift. I'm not good at that at all. Or I won't serve because I, I'm just kind of afraid. I, I don't think I can talk to anybody about Jesus. Or I'm not gifted to serve in that way. God can't really use me. How often have we talked ourselves out of serving Jesus in some way? Or we've just grown too comfortable with the way our life looks now. And yet God used Paul. That's a testimony all over the New Testament because this Paul guy ends up writing a lot of the New Testament. And God wants to use you. However unlikely you think you are, you are God's instrument. Have you ever thought of yourself as God's chosen instrument, as Acts calls Paul? And there are people and there are places that God has positioned you and only you so that you can show others what Jesus is like. God seeks you out, God loves you, God forgives you, God changes you, and God commissions you. So that's a bit on Paul and his story, and a bit on you, now who? Paul, you, and now who? Who is it in your life? Who is it in your life that God might want to use you to reach? Who does God want you to be an Ananias to? About whom is God saying, go find that person, love them, pray for them, show them my love, forgive them, and tell them that I love them and that I died for them? Who is that person in your life? And how often do you respond and say, oh God, them, no, 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 they'll, they'll make fun of me, they'll, they'll think I'm dumb, God, no, please no. Which is exactly, I'm sure, what Ananias was thinking when God called him. Like, no, please no. Who? Who in your life could be the next Saul, that God wants to transform. 
And how might God want to use you to do it? Is it a phone call? Is it a text? Is it, is it sitting down for lunch? Is it, is it simply a kind act of service when they might expect you to be unkind? Start praying for them. Pray that God would draw them to Jesus. You see, the person in your life who you think wants nothing to do with Jesus, can you even imagine them in God's kingdom? Can you imagine their testimony if they trusted in Him? Can you imagine how God could use them? We have to use our gospel imagination. God changed Paul. God has changed you and me. And we pray that God changes them and uses them too. You are God's chosen instrument. Remember that. You are God's chosen instrument, just like Paul, to proclaim the name of Jesus. That means you are chosen by God to trust in His good news. But He also wants you, and He wants to use you to draw others to Him too. So may the peace that goes beyond our understanding, may it continue to grip your hearts and minds and continue to reach out and grip others too. And keep us all in faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.